Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. It's time to assess this week as it's just about gone by here. We're going to figure out what happened this week and what it means as we do every Friday with our panel of journalists. And this week we've got CrossCuts Eastern Washington reporter Mai Wong. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Hello, everybody. And we've got uh, from The Stranger, editor Chase Burns. Chase, welcome back. Good to see you. Hello, hello, hello. Political analyst and columnist Joni Balter. Joni, thanks for coming along today. Happy Friday to all of you. Happy Friday. Only one of us is wearing a coat today, and I know which one because I can see the live stream on YouTube and Facebook, and you can see us too by searching for KUOW Public Radio. Chase, are you still chilly from earlier this week when we set a new record low for the date of 36 degrees? I am chilly, and to spoil it, I am wearing a jacket. Um, I moved here from Minnesota, so I thought that I was like really strong against the cold, but I think after our hot summer, I've become a bit of a wimp, and mm. uh, I'm not looking forward to the heating bill, but you know what? We'll, we'll get through this. We're going to get through it. I might put on a, a hoodie here halfway through the show. We'll see. Um, and and uh, by the way, Maya, I saw that... Uh, it's, I, I was checking my phone just as we were about to start, and it's about the same temperature where you are in Yakima as it is in Seattle right now in the mid-50s. But did it get super cold in, in, in the east side of the state this week? Yeah, it actually got to like bel- like below freezing for like a second, like in the mm. 30, overnight lows in like the low 30s. Um, so I personally don't mind it. Um, it. It got, you know, as you all know, it got up to like 114 here. And in Yakima, we get like 100 degree temperatures like all the time. So I actually am very happy that it's not, it's actually cold. And I, it's perfect running weather for me personally. So I'm mm-hmm. pretty happy. Excellent. Uh, yeah, we've all adjusted. I, f- I feel like I got to readjust my, my, my desire. I don't know what I want anymore. I don't know if I want heat or rain or cold. I just don't know. I will say my sixth grader who only wears shorts, uh, who says boys don't wear pants, actually had to find some earlier this week. Uh, but he is back back to shorts today, though. Thank God. OK, let's get at the news of the week and uh, and figure out what happened. We've got let's start with our local elections this week. We told you last week about an attack ad against Seattle mayoral candidate Bruce Harrell. Now there's an ad out against mayoral candidate Lorena Gonzalez that we learned about this week from KUOW's public uh, politics reporter, David Hyde. The ad starts with ominous music and a question. What will Lorena Gonzalez do if elected mayor? Among other things, the ad implies City Council President Lorena Gonzalez is responsible for 300 officers leaving the Seattle Police Department. We can't use our parks, and we feel unsafe. Gonzalez campaign spokesperson Alex Corrin says the ad's misleading. Last year, the city council cut the police budget about 20 percent, not enough to explain 300 officers leaving. Gonzalez is open to defunding the police by 50 percent or more, but Corrin says she'd tie any future cuts to alternative funding to improve safety. Everything that people need to know about this ad is in the disclaimer that people are paying for it. The ad was created by a PAC called Herald for Seattle's Future, funded by large donations from real estate executives and other wealthy individuals. Joni Balter, what do you make of this uh, mayoral campaign so far? Oh, boy, I think it's going to be kind of close in in the end there. Uh, I think we are into the silly season, as some of us were referring, uh, talking about before the the show started. You know, you're going to see some ads that are going to make you scratch your head. You know, the one last week, uh, tying Bruce Harold to Donald Trump. 
uh, you know, that was a head scratcher because, you know, just look at Bruce Harrell. He doesn't exactly remind me of Donald Trump. I don't see how you get there. This one is based on the one that you're mentioning. I did see this one is based on the idea that public safety is a big topic and that Lorena Gonzalez, as the incumbent uh, council president, has something to do with that. Uh, she's not directly responsible for 300 officers leaving, but she's not not responsible because she did support the defund 50%. So you have many council members supported that, and now there's blowback, and there's blowback across the country to this. This is not just in Seattle. You have actually New York Times reported, Wall Street Journal reported that what's happening in some cities that actually defunded or cut by 20% or some other number, that they're now hiring and adding police officers because of, of another trend that's going on, which is a rise in violent crime and murder and shooting. And we do have that here. Chase, how about you? What do you want to say to any of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, don't you love this season, Bill? I think, like Joni said last week, we saw Lorena comparing uh, Bruce to insurrectionists. And this week, we've got Bruce suggesting that, you know, or Bruce's pack suggesting that the whole city is unsafe uh, because of Lorena. And I think, obviously, both of these are hyperboles uh, and generalities, but uh, they do get to key perspectives from both of the candidates. Uh, Lorena keeps pushing that Bruce is to the right of her politically, and and Bruce is pushing that Lorena you know, is responsible for crime and exits at at, at SPD. Um, I think that uh, there's there's some truth in both of those, um, and uh, I would encourage people to go to the candidates' uh, websites and get into the details of their plans. Um, some of them are are more detailed than others, and I am happy I don't have. Uh, a TV, or at least uh, I don't have regular cable. So I, I hopefully will miss most of these over the next few weeks. My, I'm curious what it's like uh, watching this Democrat on Democrat campaigning from where you are in Yakima. I mean, it's really fascinating to me because um, my understanding is I, I've talked to my colleague at Crosscut, Dave Croman, about how they've actually voted on things in the city council. And it sounds like they, they don't depart very much from each other I guess I mean I think that's that's my impression and so I feel like they're not that different but you know they have to appeal to voters somehow and this is I guess where we are now is you know it's um you know we're kind of in a very polarizing political situation and I think it's very natural to kind of do the in out in group out group and kind of put uh put people guilty by association so I think that's what we're seeing here yeah, in-group, out-group. Joni, you wanted to talk about where the money is coming from in these campaigns. Well, well that is what, you know, so that's what the can, that's what the candidate, Lorena Gonzalez, definitely wants to talk about because she keeps trying to say that, you know, Bruce Harrell is tied to all these awful corporations. Couple of things on that. Couple things on that. Um, Bruce Harrell did not, um, you know, he's not the summation of his, his donations in some ways. You know, he has some folks in there uh, there's this guy who did did donate, uh, George Petrie, did donate to um, Harold, but also donated to Jay Inslee, Dow Constantine, uh, Joe Nguyen. I mean, you know, so, but it's not an issue in these other races. It's an issue here. I also think when you look deep into who's donating money, you'll find some uh, what you might call white hats in, in business here. You'll find someone like... Um, John Stanton, he happens to own the Mariners. He's in there for Bruce Harrell. 
Uh, you'll find some other folks in there. Uh, and then when you go to, to I, I do wanna talk about uh, the distinction between um, the funding for, for both campaigns. So when you look at the independent expenditures, which is where you see these big numbers, uh, yes, Bruce, Bruce Harrell has George Petrie, but you look at the, the essential workers for Lorena Gonzalez, uh, the number changes, the percentage changes from time to time because people keep dumping money in there. But out-of-state unions are about half of the contributions there uh, from New York, from DC. And, you know, I guess there's a difference between, um, you know, out-of-state and, and foreign influence, which is a whole other topic. Lorena Gonzalez actually authored a bill to make sure no foreign influence, even the most minuscule amount of foreign influence, 1% stock ownership, like Amazon, um, could even participate in this election. And so it's very interesting when you get into this. So is did, it okay? Did that actually keep Amazon from participating in yes, the it election? Did. It, Absolutely. That, that effective yes. that way. Okay. Now, if individ remember, individuals yes. uh, can give. But as a corporation, Amazon is not contributing uh, in this race. Uh, they can't because of that bill that, mm. that it was it passed unanimously. So it wasn't it was authored by Gonzalez, but it wasn't just uh, her in sort of approving it. I'm going to play a little bit of audio from last night's debate. Chase, is there anything you wanted to say about uh, money in these campaigns? Yeah, I guess I just, you know, I, I personally, I don't find the national unions to be quite as much of an issue as, as Joni. I think Washington you know, prides itself on being a starter state. Uh, we test out a lot of policies that get exported around the country. $15 minimum wage is a great example. So, you know, we attract national attention and workers have solidarity across the country. Um, I think it, it's funny when we talk about uh, corporations like Amazon and Starbucks being like local companies that are sort of restricted in participating. Because I think when you look at a company like Amazon, I mean, their ambitions aren't just, uh, you know, international, they're intergalactic. Um, and so I think we, we, we can only stretch the word local to be so, so big. Well, here's the deal on that, if I, if I can just respond here for a second. So Amazon, yeah, worldwide company, of course, you're right. But here in Seattle, they employ something like 60,000 People, they pay taxes here. They cannot have a voice, but out-of-state unions can. Uh, let's, let's shift to this. Here's something that Harold and Gonzalez can agree on, is that Amazon should pay more. Uh, they were talking about uh, Amazon at last night's debate, asked what to do about Amazon's outsized influence on Seattle's housing and infrastructure problems. So I'll start with the candidate, Bruce Harrell. Well, number one, they have to pay their fair share of taxes. Number one. Number two, they have to align their corporate social responsibility goals with that of the city. Now, one difference here is that Harold says state lawmakers will raise taxes on Amazon and other businesses, while candidate Lorena Gonzalez says Seattle itself should raise Amazon's taxes. I'm not going to punt to the state legislature to fix our revenue problems. We have an opportunity to do that here, and we should take it. Now, Gonzalez said she doesn't think Amazon is going to move jobs away to nearby cities over tensions with Seattle's government. Any reaction there? Well, I thought that was a little smug in some ways. And the reason being that, you know, there was a story, and this is what um, uh, Council President Lorena Gonzalez was talking about. There was a story that said that uh, this couple of weeks ago, that 12,500 new jobs would come for Amazon would come to Seattle. Well, it turns out that's not the right number. It turns out that about a third of that is true. 
Some of that um, are backfills. In other words, people leaving Amazon and they're just jobs that are open that have to be filled. Some of those are interns who are based out of Seattle who go around the country, around the world. And, um, and some of those are Seattle area jobs. In other words, Bellevue and a few other locations, perhaps like Redmond. So it's not that they love us madly and will never um, rebel if, if we you know, hit them, hit them again. And just by looking at you know, what they're doing, you know, they're not leasing any more buildings in Seattle. They're not building any more buildings. A lot of the action is in Bellevue. Yeah, you know, I think last night, one of the things that was interesting is we we saw two very experienced politicians running for office. And I say that because I, they both repeated uh, nearly word for word attacks and points that they've we've heard them say in other debates. And one of the things that Bruce said um, that I've heard him say in other debates is that we'll sort of tap into corporations and uses that that verb tap a lot. And I think it sort of explains his perspective towards uh, towards bigger businesses like Amazon. You know, Bruce wants to work with them um, kind of more gently. And Lorena uh, seems to think that we need to force their hand to provide contributions uh, that play out a lot. You see Bruce talking a lot about like, he says corporate social responsibility. And so, you know, what's, what's the corporation's social responsibility? And do we believe that they're going to um, participate and, and be responsible in that way? Um, or do we think that at the end of the day, a corporation like Amazon, you know, the way that we've set up our country, it's ultimately driven um, by profits. And so is it going to be, are there, is their attention going to be directed towards that or directed towards Seattle, one city that they're a part of uh, around the country and the globe? To focus on, on Seattle a little more, and then uh, Mai will talk about uh, stuff that uh, sort of spans the region and the state a little bit more. But I wondered if any of you had a reaction to Amazon's announcement this week that, after all, they are going to let their office employees uh, work from home if they can work that out with their supervisor I indefinitely. So it pushes off this time of, of the big return to places like South Lake Union. Uh, any, any reaction? Well, yeah, I, I think it's, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, I would say uh, I'm definitely, it'll definitely be really interesting um, what, how companies, I think Amazon kind of leads and then other businesses follow. So if Amazon is saying, hey, we're, you guys can work remotely indefinitely, other businesses are going to be like, okay, well, if Amazon's doing it, we should do it. So I could see a lot of companies like downsizing their offices. So having just enough space for the people that have to be in the office and then maybe some space for like some charging stations for people that might, you know, come in occasionally. So it could have a, a big impact in terms of, you know, leases and office space and how much office space people rent out. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, and Amazon's policy, I think they said that it applies to like 60,000 workers. Um, a lot of those workers have uh, talked off the record and said that uh, ultimately the decisions come down to their direct supervisor. And so it remains to be seen if direct supervisors are going to allow their teams to permanently work remotely. Um, so, you know, 60,000 is a, is a big number and that applies across the Puget Sound region. Um, but we will see 
how it comes back to life. Um, I think one quote that I read was from uh, Seattle Coffee Works CEO, Heather Schmidt. And she told the Seattle Times that, you know, her business can't rely on one company to be our supporters, that they're here for the entire community. And I thought a lot about that quote. Um, obviously, it's smart for businesses to sort of diversify their revenue streams in, in general. It shouldn't be relying on one company. Um, but we, we have to think about that with downtown. I mean, it, the pandemic changed uh, work from home policies. Uh, we never thought that we'd be doing the radio over Zoom um, in all of our homes. And a lot of these fixes work. And so we're gonna see businesses um, adapt to that. And I think we are going to have to also adapt our downtown spaces and be, be open-minded about how we can use that, that open office space if it ends up staying open. Generally, radio shows by Zoom work. Sometimes a guest like Joni drops away briefly, but I see her again. Welcome back, Joni. And uh, we're, we're talking about the impact of uh, the Amazon decision. And of course, it's not just Amazon, but they're the, they're the big player saying that they're going to uh, let people for an indefinite period of time, let office workers uh, see if they can arrange a work from home with their supervisors. So it's more like Microsoft leading Amazon around. If you, if you look at it closely, Closely, I wrote a piece for a Bloomberg Opinion about this, and yeah, it is really big news that they that they came to this. But you know, they kept making these announcements: we will be back three days, two days, and it will be this day, and it will be that day, and this is who will decide, uh, you know, what days you are working in the office. And then Delta came along, and it just you know it just became absurd to keep saying a date that you're going to have to keep leapfrogging ahead because you didn't exactly know what the actual course would be for, for Delta. Uh, so it's really big news. They are somewhat following Microsoft in the sense that they're going to leave it entirely up to quote directors. Directors um, lead teams at, at Amazon and decide who will actually get to work from home for what period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do think this has huge ramifications for downtown Seattle. You know, Amazon has all those buildings they, they have said they're done building in Seattle, but they have those buildings. What are they going to do with them? Uh, yeah, we've seen a couple of stories even this week that there's a lot of tech company interest in large space um, leasing downtown. But, you know, it's really going to change downtown if people are not going to come back. So I think the big action here is, is where the um, directors decide. Are that many people really going to get to work at home indefinitely? Or is, are they just sort of done trying to take it from the top? Uh, that, I think that's it. But Microsoft has sort of been, and you know, this has been going on for months here. Microsoft said that you could basically decide with your manager what you're going to do. And so there was no, there was no, they don't have a date now that you have to go back to work. You, they have different dates at different times that you have to work with your supervisor to decide how much you know, work from home is, is going to be reality. As I said, we're going to move out from Seattle in a moment. Before we do that, I just want to uh, uh, talk about what's happening a little bit north of downtown. The first home game for the Kraken, the NHL team, is a week from Saturday, the 23rd, against our bitter rival from the wrong side of the border, the un-American Vancouver Canucks, come, <laughs> daring to come in, the gall of them coming to climb <laughs> <laughs> climate Pledge Arena. Uh, Chase, does everybody love the newly renovated uh, Climate Pledge Arena and its effects? 
Yeah, so some of, well, one specific neighbor has raised some complaints this week. Um, the Vera Project is one of the nearby neighbors to the Climate Pledge Arena. There's also KXP uh, and SIF is nearby. Um, and like a That's lot the of- film festival. Yes, Seattle International Film Festival. They have a few locations. Um, and like a lot of arts venues, the Vera Project has been shut down due to the pandemic, recently reopened, and that's its own burden. Um, but they have uh, brought to the media this week um, that they've had to deal with some unique construction issues related to the Climate Pledge Arena. Um, and there's a kind of a really long list of grievances, um, but some of the things that they bring up is uh, construction equipment has been blocking their entrances and emergency exits, um, like their HVAC system was destroyed because of construction. Uh, they had hazardous fumes, extremely hot steam, they say, came into their building, forcing people to leave. Like there's a bunch of stuff that's that's happened that's prevented them from being able to reopen. Um, they wanted to reopen on July 1st. They couldn't do that because of the construction. Um, and they, they say that they anticipate um, that they're going to lose about $200,000 because of all of this. Um, they've brought their complaints to the Seattle Center and to um, the Oakview Group, which is the construct construction company in charge of it. Um, and the Seattle Center says that they've uh, had several large meetings with uh, the construction leads in Vera Project, and they've been meeting regularly to try to resolve some of these complaints. Um, but I think ultimately, uh, Vera Project feels like the responses have been inadequate um, and I, I think they're looking for some sort of financial compensation. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think what, what's symbolic about this, and, and the reason I think I, I'm really attracted to the story is because you have Vera Project, which is this, this longtime arts organization that serves an underserved community in Seattle. Uh, it specifically serves uh, kids that are underage and can't get into a lot of music venues in town. Um, and you have them right next door to this massive arena and, you know, next week Coldplay is coming and they're going to perform there. Um, but then you sort of, if you look to the right a little bit, you'll see like a Vera project that's been sort of, <laughs> I, I walked by there recently, I couldn't even see them because there was so much construction equipment. Um, and so it's just, it, it's a moment where we can sort of reflect on our priorities and, and try to make sure that, uh, you know, all of the arts organizations that have made our, our city what it is are still, are still able to survive the pandemic. What, what I like about this story is, you know, this is going on throughout the city. There's so much construction and we forget that, you know, the big construction projects cause traffic. They cause a lot of disruption. You know, another example would be the convention center expansion. You know, all of a sudden you're going all these different ways or you can't go the normal way that you used to go. And, you know, you have to believe that, that, it's, that it's worth it. Um, I think these projects need to have that kind, and I know they do some of it, but it sounds like they didn't do enough here. They need to have that sort of upfront mitigation plan and, and meet with small groups and small businesses and really consider how much of an interruption they are going to be because they are going to be in an interruption and they should probably, you know, pay for that because it really does harm these others trying to do their work. Yeah, and back in 2018, interestingly, uh, Council Member Herbold at Seattle City Council, um, she proposed an amendment that would have created a mitigation fund um, for tenants at the Seattle Center. Um, but that amendment was ultimately withdrawn um, because the, the construction company felt like it would place a big financial burden on them. And it was sort of, a, it was just like one detail that was sort of overlooked during this whole process. But it speaks to Joni's point that these mitigation funds 
um, can prevent issues like we're seeing right now. Um, I, I, we, we probably wouldn't be talking about this if that mitigation fund had been created. Well, the way they, they get all excited for sports uh, venues, it seems like, and they start just slashing and dashing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, what's really fascinating about this story is that you have, I think, two like character or characteristics of Seattle at play. You have, you know, the Seattle that's like hungry. They're so hungry to have a pro team back in town. You know, we, you know, I don't think, I think there's whole people who are not over to Sonics leaving town, mm -hmm. right? So, and so, you know, you have that, that, that characteristic of like, we really want to support the pro team, right? And then, but then you have like Seattle's, you know, character as like a music, you know, music center, center of grunge. And, you know, VR project is a big model for other, you know, all age venues across the country. And so I think you're just seeing like two very valuable things clashing and it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how the city responds. Cause I think they both have a place, but you know, who knows? That's Mai Wong, Chase Burns and Joni Balter. Mai's going to tell us about the slow moving landslide that, besides the pandemic in a little, in, in just a moment here. Uh, we've been talking about uh, Climate Pledge Arena, which, as I say, has its home opener coming up on Saturday, October 23rd. By the way, this week, the Kraken were released from winlessness. They, uh, after losing to the legendary hockey town of Las Vegas, they defeated the legendary hockey town of Nashville. And, uh, and then here comes Vancouver. So um, stick around. We're going to continue uh, figuring out what happened this week and what it all means with my guests. I'm Bill Radke. We're live streaming here on YouTube and Facebook. So you can join us anyhow you want. And we're going to be right back. I'm Bill Radke, and you're here with political analyst Joni Balter and The Stranger editor Chase Burns and Crosscuts Eastern Washington reporter Mai Huang. Mai, how is that slow-moving, slow-motion landslide over by, by Yakima? Still moving, according to uh -huh. DNR. <laughs> uh, slightly. You know, slightly, yeah. I mean, it's um, so this was a big story in 2018, so mm -hmm. it was it was kind of nuts. We were kind of everywhere i mean you had new york times reporters coming yeah. to report on this i mean it was kind of wild and and for good reason because you know at the time it was moving like 1.6 feet a week and you know there's this you know and their whole you know this this crack is located like right in the middle of the yakima area so you know union gaps this t like town right next to yakima it, it's like the major retail center so there's like a mall there's a roller rink there's like a bunch of restaurants i mean you know, it could potentially have been really disastrous, but, um, but yeah, they kind of gave an update recently and it sounds like, you know, it's still moving, you know, um, you know, they're down to like 0.7, I think feet a week, but um, it sounds like they're not expecting it to be this big event. They even said, we're not expecting it to be a big event because there's, it's kind of located, the the, uh, the ridge is kind of located above a quarry. And so there's kind of like debris accumulating there. And so, they're thinking like as the debris accumulates, then it's just going to like stop. We well, don't know when it's going to stop, but that's kind of the expectation. But yes, but it was it was kind of interesting. It was kind of a throwback. I'm like, oh, whoa, like I didn't expect to hear an update on this because, you know, as I said, it was a big story a few years ago. It, and then we heard like not very much since then. So well, I have a question. I wondered if the debris just just trying to stay with that story, the debris as it fills the quarry 
does that block, do they, do they have engineering scenarios that say that will then block further landslide? Yeah, I mean, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like it, the, it, that debris accumulating will almost create kind of a barrier and it kind of will just cause the crack to stop going, the slide going down. But, uh, but yeah, but I think people are still interested in it because um, this is not actually our first landslide, <laughs> um, believe it or not. Um, so in 2009, um, you guys probably heard this story, um, there was a big landslide off um, State Route 410 near Chinook Pass. And that really created some major issues. It kind of blocked the roadway. Um, basically, they had to create a detour for like, I think almost a year. So if you were driving on 410, you had to do this like little detour around the Nile area of, of Chinook, you know, on the Chinook Pass roadway. And it was re it really inconvenienced people who lived on the Nile. And we have quite a few campgrounds and restaurants and other businesses in the area. It was, it was really a big problem and it really negatively affected. So I think that's on people's minds as well as, uh, you know, we have been affected by landslides in a negative way before. But, uh, but it sounds like this one will not be as bad as that, the Chinook Pass landslide. Yeah, didn't they evacuate dozens of people and they kind of eventually looked at each other and shrugged and uh, I, I guess we'll go back. Yeah, guess, no, that's like, that's, that's what it. happened. I mean, it was really crazy. Like it was like a couple of weeks where it just seemed like we were getting these like on the hour updates about yeah. this, you know, this landslide and everyone, I mean, as I said, you know, the New York Times is in town to like watch this crack, you know, and, um, but yeah, I mean, I think at this point right now, it's just something nice, not nice, but something amusing to look at when you're driving on Interstate 82. I mean, it's it's not something that's very compelling, but you're like, oh, there's the crack. And then, you know, you keep driving. So, yeah, it's down to less than two inches a week. So uh, I don't know the, the the major motion picture watching the crack that was planned <laughs> may. I mean, that that movie might not even get uh, get funded anymore. It's, it's no, uh, yeah, it's no. not even in development from what I understand. <laughs> it's not yeah. even in development. Yeah. Yeah. Major I, yeah, investors I'm, yeah, pulling I'm, out. Yeah, I'm honestly not sure why they felt compelled to update us, but I guess they just wanted to, you know, set the record straight or something. So sure, sure. Well, here's a here's a, a a happier update on the pandemic. I'm not declaring it over by a long stretch. Just just, I mean, in, in fact, hospitals are are still pushed, stressed, especially in Oregon, but even in Washington. But the case rates are going down. The vaccinations are going up. Almost 90 percent of state employees have verified that they're vaccinated. Uh, there's a there's about to be more demand for vaccines in Seattle with uh, not only mandates, but younger kids are going to be eligible. Uh, people are going to get eligible for a booster shot. Chase, I understand you're eager for a booster shot. Yes, I will get a booster shot as soon as I can. Um, I think the most relieving. And you're day only for 63 me, years old, right? So you're I'm only 63. Eligible. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I can get it in the next few weeks. Um, but you know, one of the most relieving days for me, which I'm sure for most people was when I, like two weeks after my second shot, um, I just felt like so much anxiety that just went away that I didn't really realize had been lingering so heavily throughout this whole pandemic. And now we, we're reaching a point where we're not sure about the efficacy, uh, how long the, the vaccines last. We know they're really effective um, with preventing coronavirus and especially with preventing um, hospitalizations. Um, but we're, we're at this weird point now where we're gonna see more people getting booster shots. Um, and I, I'm curious uh, how the fall will go and how demand for booster shots will go as well. 
Um, we know that there's those new vaccination sites that are about to open, one downtown and then soon in South Seattle and West Seattle. Um, I read that the city says those could provide like 10,000 vaccinations per week with, with the ability to scale up. Um, but like for reference, like Lumen Field could vaccinate like 150,000 people a week. Um, and so obviously we're not having the same demand right now, but I'm curious what will happen once the floodgates open with booster shots, let's say, and 63 year olds like me um, can go and get them. Um, how many people will sort of be rushing to go get them? Well, you know, we in this region, we love to beat up our government officials for all that they did wrong and they deserve plenty of it. But, you know, we did a fantastic job here getting people vaccinated. Seattle did a great job. King County did a great job. Washington State did a, a you know, pretty good job. Um, and now with boosters, you know, it's going to be voluntary. But, you know, I, you know, this is something where you can count on government, business, unions to work together on and actually get a lot of people vaccinated and safe. And if you look at the kind of numbers that we have in this region, I just looked up King County, I think it was like 82% of people in King Plus have their two shots. And that, remember, we used to talk about that, that's her unity. Uh, so that is doing very well. Seattle's even higher. They're about, last time I checked, about 84.5 or 85%. And so you can assume or hope that the booster program, which you know will roll out hopefully as smooth, you know, not at the, the other program didn't roll out that smoothly, but the boosters, there's a lot of vaccine around. And so they probably can roll out fairly smoothly. And, and I think our, our city, our county did a good job of reaching different areas of the city. I live in the South End. It was easy to get a test. It was easy to get a shot after, you know, you did all these things, jump through all these hoops. So I think, I, you know, I have high hopes for this. This is something we actually seem to know what we're doing on. It was easy enough for me to get uh, my shot, although I did drive to the uh, Rainier. Um, you know, I have a car and I have I, I have a flexible schedule. It was it was easier for me than it was for uh, for a lot of people to uh, to get their shots. And once again, my uh, the contrast is striking here. We're talking about our uh, massive vaccination rates uh, in our area. You're in Yakima. What's the public COVID conversation like there? Yeah, so I think it's very interesting because I think if you were to base it on the news of people like protesting vaccine mandates and mass mandates and and candidates talking about government overreach, um, you would think like, oh, you know, vaccine rates must be kind of low. But actually in in Yakima County, um, uh, we're almost at 72% of residents 18 or 16 and up that have initiated vaccination and we're at 69% above 12. So, I mean, there's some Republicans getting their shots um, in Yakima County and, um, and, you know, there's, uh, and it's actually one of the higher counties within our area. So we're higher than like Kittitas and Benton, um, but they're not that much lower. I mean, I would say the the counties that are really low are in, you know, like the really rural parts of Eastern Washington. So like Ferry County or Adams or, you know, those counties where, you know, they're really not interested. But Yakima County, you know, we're, we're, we're getting up there and, and that number is increasing um, every day. But yeah, but I think there's definitely a conversation about mandates. Um, you know, mandates are not held very highly here. Um, there are candidates in our um, commissioner race running on that. Um, 
it's very interesting because um, our commission, our accounting commissioner race, we have two candidates that essentially have the same viewpoint. They're against vaccine mandates. But one, I think is, I think we were talking about this with the mayor race with um, Bruce Harrell wants to kind of, you know, kind of work with the government and express, you know, criticism. And then, so we have one candidate, LaDon Lynn, who's, I think more of that candidate, like he wants to work with Ensley, not so much like push back. And then we have kind of his opponent, um, Autumn Torres, who's very much like government overreach. We need to fight back. We need to fight for our freedoms. And so she's more of that push back Ensley candidate. So, so it's, it's very interesting because the vaccine numbers would tell you that like the people who are not getting vaccinated is in the minority, but you might not know that if you're reading our stories about protest about mandates so well do we know do we know what the polls are saying about how people likely to vote actually feel about how they want their politicians to talk about vaccine mandates because it's one thing sort of the inter-party um you know i've got to be i've got to outflank this opponent but that could be out of step with the with the public as you're saying <laughs> there's plenty of people getting or republicans getting vaccinated so can we tell what the what the polls are showing yeah, I mean, I don't have any hard numbers, um, but I mean, based on, I mean, what I can tell you is, is that, you know, Yakima is much more, Yakima County is much more blue. I mean, it's definitely not a blue county by any means, but, um, you know, if you looked at the, the Biden elect, you know, presidential election, you know, Yak, Yak, many areas in Yakima voted for Biden and, um, you know, you have, uh, you know, Latin, Latinx voters and, Native voters who voted Democratic. And so, you know, those voters um, right now with the county commissioner, we have one more year where it's a countywide election and then commissioners go on a district based system next year, but we have one more year where it's county based. So I think it'll be interesting to see. Um, I could see those Democrats, those leaning more liberal in Yakima County going for a candidate like LaDon Lynn rather than a, you know, person like Autumn Torres, who's much more of this, you know, personal freedoms, pushback against Ensley stance. So it'll be interesting. I think it'll be close, to be honest. Well, the crazy thing about uh, vaccine mandates is they work. And we've seen this in private industry and we've seen this in some of the government mandates already. So an example I'll use is United Airlines. I mean, they, they were tough. They said you had to be vaccinated and there was a, you know, a little bit of noise about no, we're not, but I think they're at 90% right now. So vaccine mandates, they're popular in many parts of the state, not all of them, of course, but they work and yeah. they provide public safety. And it's a good idea. It's a good thing to do. I mean, Before I think when push comes to shove, you have to you have to have a job like most people can't afford to quit their job. I mean, they'll 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 speak a big game and they'll say, you know, I'm not going to stand for this. But I mean, ultimately, you still have to pay your mortgage, you have to feed your kids, you know, and so um, and yeah, I mean, definitely over here, like, you know, I read a story in the Yakima Herald that the hospital, you know, the big hospital Yakima Valley Memorial, like a good chunk of their employees are vaccinated. So um, so yeah, I, I definitely do a few journey that, um, you know, I think one push comes to shove, people will get their shots and move on. So everybody but the WSU coach, is that correct? Right. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Still dancing around. Supposedly oh a religious exemption filing. Okay. Well, we've got uh, what they call Mandate Monday coming up here in in just a few days. Before we leave the pandemic, anybody want to hazard any predictions of whether people are going to either quit or get fired in such numbers that you know public services or businesses survivability or th there's going to be big impacts, or is it just going to be like you say they work? People talk a big game. This is going to pass and be not that big a deal. 
I also think the exemption, there are going to be exemptions. I think um, it, it doesn't seem like, um, and it's interesting, I'm, I'm interested in hearing what these exemptions are and what they look like. I don't know. But my impression from talking to some school board people and hospital people is that, you know, for the most part, they do accept exemptions. I mean, they reject them too. But um, I think, you know, so there's going to be a percentage of that, like, non-vaccinated population that will get the exemptions and then I think there's going to be the rest are going to get the vaccination because they don't feel strongly enough to quit so I, I don't I could see it being inconvenient but I don't think it's kind of I think it's a it's a lot of big talk I don't think the actions will match that big talk ultimately well there's one more overlay to this for sure we have a lot of labor shortages in a lot of different places like the ferry system and all these different places and so you know, how quickly are they going to fire employees where, where they're cutting ferry mm -hmm. runs or, you know, it's not the easiest thing to do. But, you know, I, I think it'll be important to see what percentages you end up with, because people definitely, you know, should I get a shot or should I lose my job that, you know, not very many people are going to say, you know, okay, I'll just, I'll just, see my chances out in the, in the job market. Yeah. Uh, but there will be some. And so it'll really be a tough calculation. Can we, can we, whatever entity we are, private or public, can we go forward with fewer employees if we're going to lay them off or are we going to give them, you know, cooling off period mm -hmm. or give them another chance mm -hmm. or at least show us your first shot, something like that. Right. Something, you know, a little dancing away for both sides. Chase, anything to add before we take a break? I would just say, I think the percentages across the board are probably going to raise of people who are submitting vaccination proof. Um, but, uh, and we saw that with like the Washington State Patrol. Um, and yesterday in uh, Inslee's press conference, he just reiterated that, you know, the mandates are there because they protect lives. And, you know, they've had people who have died in, uh, in different industries across the board um, because of the coronavirus. And that creates uh, a, a, an empty position as well that needs to be filled. And so it's to protect people and um, their families. Chase Burns at The Stranger, Joni Balter's here with us, columnist Joni Balter, Crosscuts Mai Huang, and we're going to take a short break and come back for our final push here at the end of Week in Review. Don't go away. I'm Bill Radke. I'm listening closely to my journalist guests. I'm also staring at them on YouTube and Facebook. We're live streaming this program, Week in Review. Just search KUOW Public Radio. And I'm talking about The Strangers, Chase Burns, political analyst and columnist Joni Balter, and Crosscuts Eastern Washington reporter Mai Wong. Mai, I know most of the hops grown in the U.S. are from just about where you are now, from the Yakima Valley and I remember the wildfires made some wine grapes taste smoky. Is our beer going to taste smoky? And, uh, and is that giant central Washington hops industry in trouble here or what? I mean, I think it's a wait and see for sure. Um, it, um, we haven't researched as much on, um, on hops. and There's impact of wildfire smoke on hops. It's been a much more of a thing for wine grapes. Um, it really became an issue last year, if you remember, um, Labor Day weekend, we had massive fires across the Northwest. Um, if you went outside, it looked like we were at the end of the world, you know, kind of that orange sky. Um, so we had really hazardous smoke conditions um, for several weeks in our region. And um, so what was happening was 
that when um, processors like Yakima Chief Hops started, you know, processing hops, they noticed this distinct, you know, smoky smell coming from their batches of hops that they were getting from their growers. And so um, it kind of created, uh, I was talking to the um, the research folks, the sensory folks at Yakima Chief Hops, and they were saying like, oh, it turned into a, you know, a, you know, an impromptu research project. They were not planning on doing this, but it kind of um, became one. So they basically, you know, segregated the hops to make sure it wasn't getting to, you know, local breweries. And then they've been spending several months. And so they did find detectable, you know, smoke compounds in beer, but they couldn't really detect whether it created like issues as far as like beer quality or the taste. And so, um, so yeah, there's continuing to research it. And then there's actually a study um, at Oregon State University, they're teaming up with New Belgium um, of Colorado. They make fat, a really popular fat tire beer. Um, mm -hmm. And John I. Haas um, of, you know, another hop supplier in our area. They're also doing a smoke, um, smoke, wildfire smoke study as well. So um, I think it, the conclusion, conclusion is it's inconclusive and we will, we shall see what will happen. I do like the uh, fat tire, which makes me basic. And uh, Chase, I know <laughs> that you, uh, you're also, we got the fresh hops coming in here uh, just after the harvest and, and you're a, you're a hops fan. You're, you're, you're interested in the smoke. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't aware of this whole hops, like the wet hops versus dry hops thing until I moved to this area. Um, and we had a, a beer reporter at The Stranger who would talk a lot about this region and how unique it is. And I'm just like amazed with the sort of uh, special crops that we can make in this area. And I really hope that these mega fires uh, don't don't wreck our, our unique industry, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, we didn't smoke out this year as much as, as we could have, or at least as much as a lot of us thought we would. And we had that heat dome back in, in June. It just seemed like it was going to be so hot and so smoky. We didn't have that year, but it does seem that smoke is now the norm. If you look back six, seven years, and it's not the exception. And you could feel this a lot of places in the West this summer, Eastern Washington, certainly I go over to Chelan. It, it didn't have as many days as I thought it would, but it had its predictable smoky days, Sun Valley, Idaho, Colorado, you know, climate change, as we always talked about it, it was far off at least by a couple of years or a lot of years, but it does seem like it's just here right now in our faces. So these industries um, that you're writing about, Mai, they're, they're going to have to have a kind of a backup plan of some sort or some way of dealing with the smoky summers because they seem like they're not going away. Yeah, and and that's um in and they are they're already talking about it. Um, so yeah, I wrote it in Crosscut this week. Uh, we ha actually ran a series about um you know climate change and various commodities you know that go into our beverages. So I did hops. Uh, my colleague Hannah Weinberg did um, a cider grapes and then um, we had another store or cider grapes cider apples and then another I have we had, and then we had another store about wine grapes and um yeah it was very fascinating to talk about the hop industry um I was um I have covered the hop harvest for years when I worked at the Yakima Herald and yeah it was very interesting to see this other side um where you know they're having conversations about you know you know life cycle assessments and you know Yakima Chief Hops is doing a, you know, carbon, you know, footprint and water usage assessment, you know, and they're measuring, you know, how much water they're using or measuring how much, you know, what their carbon footprint is. So the hop industry is really trying to, they're very aware that there could be big consequences if they don't, you know, if they don't take action. So I think, I think that's underway. On the other hand, smoked salmon, 
smoked cheddar, <laughs> smoke, uh, what else? Paprika. Uh, I mean, some products, they, uh, they just lean into the smokiness. They make it, it's, it's marketing, baby. They tap, marketing. they tap the smokiness. Exactly. Um, okay, it's time to, uh, we're close to the end of our week in review. So it's time to leave, leave our listeners with a smile. Sometimes the news doesn't lend itself to that. So I always try to make room for what's making a smile this week. Uh, Jeff Bezos' uh, Blue Origin rocket went up again this week, and this time the original Captain Kirk was on board. And after landing, standing by the capsule in the West Texas desert, William Shatner tearfully thanked Jeff Bezos. And what I was expecting Shatner to say was how... You know, seeing the, the little blue ball, you know, seeing Earth from a distance gave him a sense of peace and hope. Instead, Shatner described the blue sky we have over us like a comforter getting ripped away. And you're looking into blackness, into black oh, ugliness. Okay. And you look down, and there's the blue down there, and the black up there, and it's... Can you hear it? There By the way, I don't know. Can you hear the, 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 the rich people laughing in the, in the background <laughs> while, you know, giggling about their trip while 90-year-old Bruce, uh, or rather Bill Shatner, is, is peering into the black ugliness? What is it? More, Bill. It's, is there death? I don't know. Is that death? Is that the way death is? Whoop! And it's gone. Jesus. <laughs> that was fantastic. That, that was, was a great. real reaction from from Captain Kirk. That made me smile. Eddie, how about you all? It's smile worthy. It's smile worthy. I'm sort of personally. It's, it's just, about it's as smile worthy as the black ugliness, you know, gets. <laughs> relative. This is on a relative scale. Yes, Joan. No, I just. What makes me smile is this whole month of October because I basically celebrate Halloween for the. For the whole mm -hmm. month it's not the candy yeah i'm into the candy that's not it it's the lights it's the mood it's seeing everybody just kind of have their you know fun with their yards and their porches and you know just putting on the the costumes all all month long yeah we look at the bright side of, of death much like uh, bill shatner does anybody yeah. else got something uh, to make a smile here in the last few seconds um, Bill, do you remember the game Animal Crossing? We talked about it a lot last year. Yes, I do. Oh, yes. Um, so Animal Crossing took over the world last year. It was a huge game that people played during the yeah. pandemic. It sort of went away because, it, you know, people get tired of the game. But this morning, they released an epic, like, 20-minute long video about how they're creating this gigantic update to the game. Mm. And I, my world has been wrecked. Like I, you can, you can like change the light fixtures in your homes in this game. It's all really mundane stuff that drives people just nuts. And I'm just preparing everyone that the Animal Crossing fever is about to come back. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, I also, well, I actually was playing a lot and now my daughter has taken over my switch. So I might have to steal it back from her. Um, so she's been using it. So anyway, um, so what makes me smile is um, I know everyone's like hockey fever here, but I'm actually a figure skating fan and um, figure skating season's underway and it's the big Olympic year. So 
it's it's gonna be exciting so yeah. um, i'm gonna try to be a hockey fan too because i like the merch so but yeah figure skating <laughs> do it for the merch that is my wong central and eastern washington reporter at crosscut and chase burns editor at the stranger joni balter political analyst and contributing columnist and the whole show is produced by alec cowan and sarah Leibovitz with social media and live streaming from juan pablo chiquiza and tio popescu And I appreciate you listening. I'm Bill Radke, and I'm looking forward to having you back for another Week in Review. Great job, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill.